0: Well, we believe that the word of God is living and active, don't we? We believe that through it, people get to know Jesus Christ. And that's the goal of distributing Bibles around the world. And so I hope and pray that you guys will be able to support the Gideons today. Uh, At the end of the service, they're going to be back there. Uh, Mike and uh, Leroy will be back there with uh, open Bibles. And you can uh, choose to give to them Uh, in their little Bibles that they're holding. And... uh, be a blessing to other people as we get the word of God out to people around the world who need it. Well, we have been going through the Bible in five years period of time, and we started over it again, and we get to get through the first book of the Bible this week. How many of you got to finish up chapters 46 through 50 this week? Awesome. And so, There was a lot going on and not a lot going on at the same time. We have Jacob who's coming down from Canaan down into Egypt to be saved from this famine. We see that Joseph is over all of Egypt and helping distribute all the food that's there. And it leads to a very very unusual situation for the people of Egypt at the time where they have to sell off their goods and they have to sell off themselves. And, and it kind of forms itself into a 20% tax as, as Pharaoh kind of owns the land and now owns the people and owns everything around the land because the famine has gotten so much worse. We see the prayers of Jacob to Joseph's oldest sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim being the younger of the two, and the blessing that's shared to them as well as a blessing to the 12 sons of Jacob. You'll notice that that's a little bit different than what happened to him with him and uh, Esau. With him and Esau, there was one blessing, and, and Isaac had to be coaxed out of a second blessing once that blessing was taken. Well, here Jacob gives freely, not just to his 12 sons, but also to Joseph's oldest two as well. And we see the end of Jacob and his death and his going back to his fathers and his burial back into the land of Canaan, back into the land where Abraham and Isaac were buried. We see the promise made by Joseph to do good to his brothers, though they had wanted to do harm for him, that God caused it to be good. And we read at the very end of Genesis, the death of Joseph, with the promise of bringing his bones back, that they might be buried in the same place as Abraham. Isaac and Jacob in the land of promise, so this is what we've read this past week. If you want to read along with us, we're reading six days a week. You can get a uh, a little booklet that tells you all of our readings for the year over at the information desk. You can have a little um, notebook that you can write notes in if you're one of those note writers. We, we ask for a $10 donation, but even if you don't have that, we would just want you to take that so you can follow along with us and growing your faith in Jesus Christ. And the sermon today is called Preparing for Deliverance. It's a strange title, especially considering the synopsis I just gave you, right? Preparing for Deliverance seems like everything's good, right? that everybody's safe, everybody's down in Egypt, everybody is doing um, well with the blessing of God, what are we preparing for? I have to admit, I'm I'm a well-blessed man. I have been fortunate to live in a country where I have so many freedoms. I've been fortunate to live in a country where I've been very well provided for. I can always say, according to the scripture, when we look at the scripture, it's very consistent whether you're looking at Jesus saying it in Matthew chapter 6, whether you see James referring to it in James chapter 2, whether you see Paul talking about it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, there, there's a consistency that says, if I've got food in my belly, and I've got clothes on my back, I shall be content. It's consistent doesn't matter who you're hearing about in the scripture. I can say with confidence, I have always had food in my belly and clothes on my back. I've been given so much more than that. And I would venture to say that almost everybody in here could say the same thing all of your life. Never had to worry about those two things. Although if we were to ask ourselves, sometimes we're the uh, whiny bratty child who always wants that new toy, right? Come on, let's be honest, right? I want the new toys, too. I'm not the, you're not the only one. But I have been well-blessed. I sometimes lose sight of that blessing. As a matter of fact, the more blessed I am, sometimes I lose sight of that blessing because there's always more to be had. In our culture today, it's, it's really unusual that we talk about the 1%. And the 1% being those who are the richest of the rich within our country. Oh, those one percenters. so selfish. Not realizing we're really part of the five percenters. We are the richest. Even the poorest among us are among the richest 5% in the world. Do you guys realize that? And there's something kind of odd and weird about the richest 5% complaining about the richest 1%. Of those 5%. It's an ingratitude that has enveloped our country, enveloped, enveloped. Tomato. You know where I'm going with that. We have been blessed. We have been well blessed. We lose sight of that as Christians sometimes. And the greater the blessing that we have, the less likely we are to want to release that blessing. And and let me explain. Because when we look at Abraham... When we look at Isaac, when we look at Jacob, as we're kind of recapping what's happened here in Genesis, there's been this promise of blessing that has followed them, not just in that you're going to come into this land that I'm going to bring to you, but there comes with it a blessing. And so I want to recap that by just reminding ourselves of some of these blessings that God has promised them that they're living under. So Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, where we see the beginning of this journey of promise from Abram. It says, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise of God that will have its ultimate reality in Jesus Christ, but it's for Abraham, it's for Isaac, it's for Jacob, it's for the nation that will come forth from the lineage of Abraham. And it's repeated throughout. So when we go to Isaac, we see the same repeating that happens in Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 6. It says now there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, for I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. And if we go down just a little bit further we see that that blessing, that, that whole idea that those who bless you will also be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed is seen by Abimelech, where in verse 12, he sa- it says, Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him, the man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. As a matter of fact, it would lead Abimelech saying, hey, let's make a treaty between us because I can see that God has blessed you. And so we see that Abraham, we see that Isaac, the blessing of God is not just that they're being obedient. He's going to give them this land. He's prospered them. They have the blessing of, blessing of prosperity to the point that even the lands around them, the people who are around them, are envious of what they have. It's kind of like the one percenters, right? Abraham and I, Isaac's kind of that one percenter. Like, oh, man, look at all the stuff Isaac has. Man, he's got that new model sheep over there. I want one of those fancy new bottle sheeps, Right? Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22 is where we see Jacob talking to God. We're seeing this generational thing happening. And Jacob made a vow after he's running from Esau, and he has this dream at Bethel, and he sees the angels coming up and down from heaven. And Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and I will watch and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. Did you notice those same two things? You notice what Jacob's asking for? He's only asking for two things Food to eat, clothes to wear. Kinda of wild, right? So that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and the stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So we see that promise and we see that promise fulfilled in Genesis 35. Genesis 35, we look at verse one where it says, then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there. This is after he has had 20 years with Laban. After 20 years, he comes back home. He reconciles with his brother. Everything is going well. And God calls him again. And he says, then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. And skipping down to verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful an increase in number, a nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at that place where he had talked with them. We have seen a tremendous amount of blessing. As a matter of fact, when Jacob comes back from this land, he has flocks and everything. He even gives gifts to his brother because he has so much. And all of it is based upon a promise that this land that you are in is going to be your inheritance. It's going to be given to your descendants. I have a question for you. If you were given all of those promises, all of that blessing, what would it take for you to leave all that was promised you? All the blessing that you have, what would it take for you to leave and walk away from it? Think about that for just a moment. Because this is exactly what God asks Jacob to do. This land of promise that was to them Jacob is going to be asked to walk away from that. All that has been promised for three generations now, from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, is now going to be said, you are now going to leave this place. And We read in uh, Isaac's time, there was a famine and he was told not to go down to Egypt during that time. Rather, stay in this land because I will bless you and I will make you a nation and this will be an inheritance for you and your children forever. And that's passed down to Jacob and he hears the same thing and God says, I'm going to make from you a community of nations and kings will come from you. And you're going to inherit this place. And after a life of hardship, at least according to Jacob, Jacob, God calls him and asks him to abandon the very place that he's promised them. Genesis 45, 4 through 11. When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, this is what he says. And Joseph said to his brothers... Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So that it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You and your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you... And your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. There's something about desperation that makes us change our minds. About things that maybe we have settled, right? I'm going to live in this place forever. Some of you have that mindset. Some of you built a house here, so I'm going to live in Albuquerque forever. Maybe you're changing your mind. Maybe God has put it on you to change your mind. Maybe desperate times and desperate desperate situations have happened. Somebody's sick and the care is in another state, and you're like, I have to leave everything behind because out of desperation, I'm going to break a vow of saying, here, here because desperate times call for desperate measures. You know, I, I don't know how many of you are superhero people. I'm a superhero uh, nerd. I have no problem saying that. One of one of one of the I don't want to say it's one of my favorite movies, but a good movie of that superhero genre is Batman Begins. I love watching that movie. And and in the middle of that movie there is Falcone who's a local crime boss, right? And and Bruce Wayne comes to confront him. This is before he's Batman. For those of you who don't know, Bruce Wayne is Batman. I spoiled it for you. I'm sorry. Okay? So, but he goes there, and, and as, as he stands up to him, he's trying to stand up to Falcone, and, and Falcone is kind of confronting him. And he, and he says in his little voice, you don't know desperate you're Bruce Wayne. You'd have to go a thousand miles for people not to know your name. And, and and the whole idea that the idea that he's bringing before Bruce Wayne in this scene is this idea of desperation that at the at this moment in time Bruce isn't quite as desperate as he needs to be to make the changes. That need to be made. And that scene sets him forth on becoming, Batman. You know, can you hear the music in my head right now, but it's this idea of desperation that makes us change, makes us do things maybe we would have never done before. Desperation. All that wealth that Jacob had that was a blessing of God was going to be taken away by this famine. And God was protecting him through Joseph. And Joseph is saying, come down here or everything that you have is going to be destitute. Take it away. You won't have anything left. But if you come here, it will be preserved. Preserved. It doesn't matter that you've heard that it's the blessing of Abraham and of Isaac and it's your blessing as well that, that this land right there is promised to us. But if you stay there now, you don't have any of it. Beginning of our reading this week, in Genesis chapter 46, it says, verse 3, God is speaking To Abraham, excuse me, not to Abraham, to Jacob, and he says, I am the God, the God of your father. He said, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. So as he receives this message from Joseph, God comes and confirms and says, I want you to go down there. Don't be afraid. All of this inheritance that I have promised you, the promises of God are not negated. Didn't catch God off guard. But from Jacob's point of view, he's leaving that land that he heard from God was going to be promised. Can you imagine how hard that was? Even hearing from but, but God, I, I thought for sure. I was going to be here. This is what was promised. You brought me back here after 20 years, and now that I am back, you're telling me to go down to Egypt? That's crazy. But desperation makes us do a lot of different things, doesn't it? Jacob's not the only one that's desperate during this time. Joseph isn't the only one desperate for saving his family during this time. All the people of Egypt are desperate because the only one who's been given wisdom from God on what was going to happen is Joseph. Joseph. Joseph knew because of Pharaoh's dream that there was going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of great famine that were going to wipe out all the goodness that happened during those seven years of plenty. And because of his preparation, they set aside a fifth of everything for those good years so that they would have a storage of food, of grain that they would have for themselves. Nobody else had that because nobody else had heard from God what was going to happen. And so the people become desperate as their need becomes greater as the years go by. And the famine has wiped everything out. Remember the first two years, Jacob comes down and has grain for his sons brought back up to him while they're reconciling with Joseph. And Joseph convinces them to come on down because it's going to get worse. And in 47 chapter 47 of Genesis, we see how much worse it gets. Verses 13 through 26, it says this. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain that they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. And when the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph, and I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys, and he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. And when that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before before your eyes? We and our land as well buy us and our land in exchange for food. And we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's why they did not submit a Pharaoh that gave to, that the allotment Pharaoh gave to him. That's why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you, so you can go and plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your household and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning the land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become pharaohs. So, as this famine gets worse, we're told that year after year, more desperate needs. I need this to live off of, and I have no money anymore. We used up all the money in year three. So, year four comes along. I have no more money. I, all we have is our livestock. We'll, we'll sell our livestock if you could just give us food to eat, something for which we can grow and, and be able to live with our families. Year five comes along. The next year, is like we, we have no money, we have no livestock. All we have left is our bodies and our land. But I don't want to die. And the desperation leads them to say, anything, anything, in order to save us. Then Joseph comes up with a plan that he buys them and he says, now that all of this is Pharaoh's, you'll give 20%, one-fifth of all that you have to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths are yours. So that you can live. And notice the reaction of the people. Because desperate times call for desperate measures. You have saved our lives. The problem with blessing is that sometimes in our blessing, we don't recognize our need. We think we're self-sufficient. We think we have it all together. I, I really worry about where we're at right now in our country, in our nation, even individually. Because we don't see a desperate need for deliverance not by a general populace. We think we can get on right without God, without any help whatsoever. See, the desperation of the people in Egypt is really more akin to our desperate need for our Savior than we would ever hope to realize. But because we live in a land of blessing, we've we've masked it as if we don't need as much of Jesus as we really do. See, the irony of all of this is happening in Genesis is this is the setup for the people of God to become desperate for Him. All the descendants of Jacob and and of Joseph who are going down to Egypt, there's going to be a gap between Genesis chapter 50 and Exodus chapter 1 of 400 years. And a lot changes in that 400 years. And all of it was promised by God to happen this way. All the way back to Abraham. So Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. When he is making a covenant with Abraham. Verses 13 through 16 as as God is making this covenant with Abraham. He's, he has this offering and these, these uh, um, sacrifices split. And Abraham is, is in a deep sleep. And, and God himself walks among these carcasses to establish a covenant. He says this in verse 13. The Lord said to him, Know for certain, That your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. See, the whole idea of having to abandon the blessing of God came out of desperation. To bring the people of Israel, the descendants of Israel, to a point of desperation to cry out for God and their absolute need for Him. But the situation had to be set up. And it comes from blessing into desperation. It comes from this, that of all things, Joseph, the one who would uh, get all of this money and get all the possessions for Pharaoh, would be used in that way of setting up a slave mentality that would end up enslaving all of those people that came to be saved. And then need of deliverance. To cry out to God. To say we are in desperate desperate need of you? Are you that desperate for God? Do you realize the condition that you and I are in if it weren't for Jesus? I would say most people don't. I say most people think that they're doing just fine. Most people don't need Jesus. They don't realize how desperate their situation is because they're, they're stuck in the materialness of their blessing around them thinking this is going to last forever. This is a moment of time. And before you know it, your life is gone. And you're faced with eternity. And by then it's too late to know your need. The struggle. The biggest person who prevents me from living for God every single day is the one I stare out in the mirror. I know everything about that person's faults, struggles, sins. Issues of being double-minded. One foot in the world, one foot someplace else. I can tell you everything about that person in the mirror. And because I'm confronted with that person all the time, I know that person's desperate need for change. See, I didn't come to Jesus Christ as somebody who had blessing upon blessing placed upon me. I was at the bottom of in pure desperation recognizing how bad my life really was despite how good i had it like i said i've never been without always had clothes on my back always had food on the table always had a roof over my head and and oftentimes so much more and i just couldn't get past myself in that mirror what's going to make me change? The blessing doesn't make me change. The blessing makes me stay in that in that place of trying to find another thing to fill that gap to make me feel satisfied where I know I'm not satisfied. It's when I come to the desperate need of realizing I'm at the end of myself and that person in the mirror is not who I know I'm created to be in Christ. That's when change starts to happen. I'm gonna read from Romans chapter seven. Let me let me just say if this isn't you, then I'm worried about you. If you've never been that person in the mirror who struggled with yourself because you know you're not who God has created you to be, and yet so much better than you, I am worried about you. Because I struggle with that man in the mirror. Romans 7, starting in verse 7. What shall we say then is the law of sin? Certainly not. I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, Sin sprang to life and I died. And I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring me life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. So let me explain that for just a moment. If nobody tells you punching somebody in the face is bad, you might grow up just punching people in the face. And not feeling anything about it. But as soon as somebody starts telling you that punching somebody in the face is not good, now you have to struggle with yourself because now you realize you're doing something that's not good. And where there's no law, then there's no guilt because there's no law. I wouldn't know what coveting is, which is desiring something beyond what God has given you and believe that you have to have it for your own happiness Every two-year-old who is out there who screams in the store, like, I want that candy! They're coveting. If you didn't know a name for it before, you do now. We told our kids early You're, that's coveting. Your happiness is being dependent upon that candy. And really, that's my candy. I'm just kidding. No, I really want it to be my candy, though. I do. But I struggle with coveting too. I wouldn't know what coveting is had it not been explained to me what it was. We wouldn't know what sin is if God didn't tell us what right and wrong was. Outside of God, we have no standard for for which to, to make right or wrong meaningful. But here's the problem. That once we know that standard and we recognize that sin is what separates us from God, we are in desperate need whether we realize it or not. And this is why it says sin afforded by the commandment deceived me and put me to death. Because the the law that told me not to covet, guess what? Because of sin in me produced every covetous desire. Okay, don't eat those cookies. All I want is that cookie now. (laughs) Don't go to that website. All I want to do is go to that website now. Don't chase after the things of the world, but all I want is that boat that my neighbor has. You see what happens with you and me? Everything that we're told not to do, which might be good and, and righteous in and of itself, produces in us a terribleness that we look in the mirror now and we're this person who is no longer happy with the things that God has given us, but we look in the mirror of this ragged person who only wants what everything in the world has and is not satisfied with anything, and we don't recognize our desperate need for something more. And until we do, we're not going to change. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate to do, and if I do not do what I want to do, I agree that the law is good as it is. I no longer, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. And I know nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do. This I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that lives in, in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Have any of you ever felt that before? I recognize that God is good that he's holy, that he's just. I want to do those things. And then I find myself doing exactly what he doesn't want me to do over and over and over again. Have you ever just had that fight? You go off and do it and you look in the mirror like, why did I do that? It's so stupid. I know not to do that and I did it anyway. Why did I do that? Do you realize the desperate need that we have for deliverance? Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. The only one who can break that is Jesus. But you know what? We have to be prepared for deliverance. We have to recognize how bad our situation really is. We have to be put in a position where we're going to cry out to God in our depravity that we recognize how bad we really are so that Jesus can truly become Lord because until then, no real change is going to happen in your life or mine. We'll just kinda kinda do Christianity light. We give Jesus a little bit of this and a little bit of that, just enough to seem holy to everybody else around us. But the problem is you and I still have to look at the mirror. And you and I still know the depravity that's in our hearts, the rebelliousness, the sin thing that pushes us away from God, can we just be okay with it? Because if we can, then we're not desperate enough for Jesus. See, the desperation of the situation that Jacob was going to be put in is what moved him from the land of promise down to Egypt, even though that land was promised to him and his descendants forever. The desperation of the people of Egypt who were wanting to live sold everything they had, including themselves and their property because they wanted to live and they knew no other way. For you and me, it's the same. If you want out of the cycle of sin that continues to infest our lives... then you and I have to come to the point of getting to the end of ourselves. Not settle for a Jesus light, but to be desperate enough to realize I need deliverance from all of my sin. And only Jesus can do it. And until I look at myself righteously in that mirror and recognize that that person that's right there Created in the image of God is in need of desperate redemption. Until I come to that conclusion, I will never come to Jesus. We need to be prepared for deliverance. Would you stand with me? I could just have you bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Outside of God who knows you better than yourself, nobody knows you like you. If you were looking at a mirror at yourself right now, the things that you struggle with, The things you desperately want freedom from. Would you be willing to trust Jesus to get rid of those things? That's the reason Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine not so that it would re-inhabit us again and again and again and again, but he would transform us into a new being, to a new creation in Christ. Somebody who doesn't have to live that way anymore, though we may stumble, that we can have true freedom in him because of him, because of our desperate need. If you recognize that, are you willing to trade out what you're seeing in the mirror for Jesus? If you've never done so, we invite you today to do that God thank you so much for this time that we have together in this place and thank you for Jesus who has taken care of our desperate need on the cross I pray dear heavenly father in the name of Jesus that we would be a people who desperately need Jesus That people will see our desperate need for him. And that we would live for you because of what you've done for us. That you would transform what we see in the mirror. And that you would see us through the eyes of Jesus redeemed because of what you've done. And that you would transform us, conforming us into the image of your son. This is your promise, O God. And we don't have to fight forever that someday, one day, immediately, right now, in a positional place, and eventually in your kingdom where all this will be stripped away from us. For those who don't know that freedom, may they know it today. May they see their desperate need and realize you're the only solution. In Jesus' name, amen.